We're continuing our study this morning in the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bible, let's open there together. Ruth chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 9 and end in verse 22. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. Uh, We've also printed the text for you uh, in the bulletin. You can follow there if you prefer. We're going to jump right in. We're going to read the text together. So this is the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Sends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Jesus and David's greater son, we offer this prayer to you this morning that you would deal with us mercifully and kindly, that you would use your power to cause the scales to fall from our eyes, that our ears would be unstopped that our hearts would turn from hearts of stone, hearts that are defensive, into hearts that are soft and receptive to instruction. Would you show us yourself? Would you show us ourselves? And would you show us the path of life that we might glory in your name? For we ask this in the matchless name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Some of you, not all, but some of you may remember a TV show in the 70s. It ran from 1972 to 1978 called The Bob Newhart Show. Anybody remember that show? Okay, here's the premise. Bob Newhart, comedian. It was a very, very dry comedy. He played a psychiatrist uh, in this show. It was a 30-minute sitcom, and his wife, the character in this show, her name was Emily. 
So that show ran for about six years back in the 70s, and that's going to be important here in just a minute. Okay, so don't forget this show over here. Don't forget Bob Newhart and his wife, Emily, okay? When that show ended in 78, four years later, Bob Newhart came up with an entirely new TV show. This one he called Newhart. Very creative, right? That was the Bob Newhart show. This one is called Just Newhart. But the premise was entirely different. Okay, in this show, he wasn't a psychiatrist. He owned an inn. He was an innkeeper uh, up in Vermont and wore a lot of sweaters, had a lot of weird friends. And his wife in this TV series, her name was Joanna. And this show ran for about eight years from about 1982 till about 1990. Maybe more of us remember that show uh, than the others. But they decided they were going to bring the whole series, the entire show, to an end. Okay, not just the season, but the show. And so they thought, how can we do this in a very memorable way? And so um, they came up with one of the gutsiest endings to a TV show series uh, that's, that's ever been. Even TV Guide said this is in the top five series ending shows that ever was, ever has been. Great way to end the series. Okay, so track with me here. This is going to take a second, but here's, here's how the show ended. We've got the New Heart Show, right? It's on eight years. The very, very last two minutes of the very last episode ends this way. He's in the lobby of his inn, Bob Newhart, and all of these guests are in the lobby. They're frustrating him. He's mad. So he says, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here. And when he's walking out the door, he's struck in the head by a golf ball. And the screen fades to black. Bob Newhart goes unconscious, and we've got silence. Then after about five seconds, the lights come up very dimly, but we can just kind of make out a bedroom. And Bob Newhart sits up in bed. He gasps and he says, whoa, I just had the weirdest dream. And he turns on his light and he's kind of waking up, rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. And he says, honey, honey, wake up. And she reaches over, turns on her light and she rolls over. And where we would expect to see Joanna, right, the blonde from the Newhart show, it's not Joanna. Who is it? It's Emily from the Bob Newhart show from the 70s. The crowd goes crazy. There's applause there's laughter because they get the joke. And what's the joke? What is, what is Bob Newhart, what is, what is he telling us? What is he insinuating uh, with, this, with this dream with him waking up in bed with Emily? He's saying the Bob Newhart show never ended. And really the Newhart show that was on in the 80s for eight years, it was just a dream. It wasn't actually reality. And he says to Emily, like, I, we had all these weird friends. We wore a lot of sweaters. Um, I was married to a blonde. Maybe you should wear more sweaters. And she says, oh, just go back to bed. Gutsy ending. Complex ending, right? But it was worth it. It got people engaged. Uh, people loved this story. And if you're with me, you would say, and you would agree with this, this sentiment, that the really truly great stories, the great ones have great endings, Right? A story or a narrative can be so-so as long as the ending is really good. If the ending is really good, it can redeem a whole series. But similarly, if, if, if the storytelling is really, really good, if you're really bought into the characters and the ending is lousy, it can ruin an entire series, can it? Some of us are still recovering from Lost, aren't we? Great storytelling, great narrative, ending was lousy. No spoilers, Right? Well, we're looking at the book of Ruth, and it's coming to a close. And what I want to suggest this morning is that the ending of Ruth is epic. It's a glorious ending. 
but it's very unexpected. So I want to look at this, this ending in three ways. I want to look at the outsider, I want to look at the widow, and I want to look at the house. The outsider, the widow, and the house. Those are my three points uh, this morning. Well, first, uh, the outsider. Maybe the best way to end Ruth would be with a romance, right? All of us love a good Cinderella story, right? Uh, a woman of the earth, poor, marries a guy higher up, an aristocrat, and they live happily ever after. They have a child, right? This would make sense uh, to us. I mean, after all, didn't God say to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that God was going to bless Abraham? He was going to bless Abraham's seed. So why? So that they could bless outsiders, so they could see outsiders, people outside of Israel, come in and be a part of the covenant family, right? So let's take a look at this, and, and let's see how this makes uh, for an ending. Let's remember how the story of Ruth starts. Uh, the narrator says that Ruth is a Moabite, and because of the rest of the scriptures, we know a lot about the Moabites. In Genesis chapter 19, Moab is a grandson of Lot, and he is brought into the world in very unconventional and very inappropriate ways we're not going to get into this morning. And um, the people that come after him, his clan, his tribesmen, they're called the Moabites. They don't follow after Yahweh. They follow after this other false god named Baal Peor, right? And even when we get to the book of Jeremiah, there's a judgment pronounced against them uh, in that book uh, by Jeremiah. So if there ever was an outsider um, to Israel, the Moabites are exhibit A in a number of ways. And this is Ruth, and this is who she is. She's an outsider to Israel. But notice what God does in this passage. Though this is who she is, God welcomes her into this covenant family in, in three ways. First, through marriage. Look back at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. It's one thing to win the lottery, but it's another thing if you win it twice. Ruth won the lottery twice. And when she married Malon, he was an Israelite, right? And she married into the covenant family, but he died. And then when she travels to Bethlehem with Naomi, she marries again to Boaz, who is also an Israelite. She marries in again. So through marriage, she's welcomed into this covenant family. Um, she's also welcomed through fruitfulness, the last part of verse 13, it says, And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. What we know from the earlier uh, part of Ruth is that Ruth was married for 10 years to Malon. And for 10 years, they were unable to have a child. That's because she was barren. And through the language of this text, what God is trying to communicate to us is that this wasn't a natural childbirth. This was a supernatural childbirth. God blessed her, and God blessed Boaz and they produced a child. This Moabite, this outsider, blessed with marriage, blessed with a child. But she's also blessed through a community. Maybe you saw this in verse 11 and 12. Notice how these witnesses, these people at the city gate, respond to Ruth, this new family member, this outsider, this Moabite who's coming into the family of Israel. If this were us, we might say, like, oh, let's take our time. Let's see how this goes. Now, let's give her some space. Let's not make any, any rash judgments. But notice what they say at the end of verse 11. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel, like Leah, insiders, who together built up the house of Israel. This community welcomes her warmly 
into the covenant family of God. So if the story were to end here at the end of verse 13, I think all of us as readers would go, we're okay with that. That's great. Again, we love a good Cinderella story, right? And they named this book Ruth for a good reason, because it's, it's the story of this outsider who's brought in. Look, God is making good on his promise to be kind and to be gracious to outsiders. How great is God, right? We'd pay 10 bucks. We'd go see this in the movie theater. We love stories like this. But this is not where the story ends. The narrative goes on. And when the romance ends in verse 13, we pick up and the camera pans over to Naomi and we find Naomi with a child in her lap. So let's look at Naomi. Let's look at the widow here. Again, like Ruth, a little bit of context. Remember how Naomi's story begins in the first part of Ruth. She's empty. Ruth's husband dies. Or excuse me, Naomi's husband dies. Naomi's two sons die, and she's left with this great debt. Again, it's tied to the land somehow. We don't know exactly how much or how this exactly worked, but we know that she's in debt. She's in financial trouble. She's in hardship. And one of her daughter-in-laws goes back to her own family, so she's left with this debt and this Moabite daughter-in-law named Ruth. And in her own words, she said, don't call me Naomi. That means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, because God has forsaken me. My life is bitter. Mara means bitter. God has left me. And so her story begins with what we would call a tragedy. But this being the case, notice how God responds to her. God responds to her graciously. He provides for her. He fills her with joy in three ways. First, God deals her a kinsman redeemer. Look at verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, Again, there was provision in Israel's laws that if, if a husband dies and, and your sons die, that someone else in your family can pay your debt and absorb you into their family so that that family name might perpetuate and move on and be kept. And that's exactly what Boaz did on behalf of Naomi. He was her kinsman redeemer. He paid a great debt on her behalf, which was costly financially, costly emotionally. He had to give up a lot. It's very very sacrificial. God deals her this redeemer. He also deals Naomi, a daughter. Listen to what uh, the women say to her in verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. This comment right here is, is remarkable. Because remember, we're in this, this patriarchal society and community where, where sons are valued more than daughters. And what these women in, in the community are saying is, hey, Ruth is not equal to having the perfect number of sons. Remember, seven is the perfect number, right? She's not equal to having the equivalent of seven sons. What, because of what Ruth has done for you, because of her generosity, because of her wisdom, her hard work, she's worth more than seven sons. Look at what God has done for you, Naomi. He's given you a daughter, not just a redeemer to pay your debt, but a daughter who's worth more than seven sons. The text goes on. She's dealt a redeemer, a daughter, and in verse 17, she's dealt a son. Did you pick up on that? 
Verse 17, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Now, technically, who has the son been born to? Not a trick question. Ruth and Boaz, that's her son. Why would they say something like this? And here's the reason. What Ruth and Boaz decide to do with Boaz is, is, is something that's not uncommon. Um, and it's, it's, they gave this son to Naomi to be a kind of a nurse, to, kind of, to, to, to act as if she is going to be a, a foster mother to Obed. And all the grandmothers in the room are, are drooling because isn't this your heart's desire? Because maybe your grandchildren are in other cities and other states. Maybe you only get to see them once or twice a year. What this meant for Naomi is that she was going to have access, right? She was going to have access. She was going to have influence over Obed in ways that normal grandmothers don't get to have. She's going to get to be involved in this child's life. It's as if she had her own son. The women say, the Lord has gifted you with a redeemer, a daughter, and a son. Where's that bitterness now? God has turned this emptiness into fullness. Like Job, right? The story is flipped on its head. And she's provided for by God. Now, now this has got to be the ending of Ruth, right? This would be a great way to end it. We've got the romance covered with Ruth and Boaz, the Cinderella story. Now we've got the rags to riches. You know, Naomi was empty. Now she's full and being blessed by God. We could end the story here. We could all go home full, looking at God, what he's done on behalf of the poor, on behalf of the outsider. But the story goes on. We're not done. And what I want to suggest is, is that we've been looking at, at this story over the last four weeks, these last four chapters. Our, our, our focus has been so narrow on these, on these main characters, Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, Obed. And we've been looking at the city of Bethlehem. What we're gonna, what's going to happen in these next few verses is God's going to kind of zoom out and go, there's a whole lot more canvas here than you realize this story of redemption and this story of being filled, this story of, of being rescued out of bitterness and emptiness, it's only going to get bigger. So let's zoom out and let's put our wide-angle lens on. And that's exactly what God is going to do to this genealogy. So I'm looking now at verses 18 through 22. Um, what God promises and what he's going to show us uh, in this genealogy is that he's going to establish a house. This is the last point. That through this family, through Ruth and Boaz, he is going to establish a house. Look back at verse 11. Listen to what the witnesses say. They say, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. In other words, like God did with Jacob, and Leah and Rachel, and they produced who? The 12 sons, right, from which we get the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, what God did with Jacob and Leah and Rachel, God is going to do with Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. That through this family, through a family of outsiders, through a family of, of poor widows who are helpless and in great debt, through these people, God is going to build a house, not just for Boaz, but he's going to build a house for Israel, for the people of God. 
Again, we've been so focused on this house of Boaz. What God is telling us here is this house is only getting bigger. The canvas is only getting wider. A couple more things here as we look at this genealogy. This genealogy points us into the future, and it points us into the past. First, what do we see about the future? Now, this genealogy tells us um, that from this house is going to come a king. Long before the people of God know to ask for a king, God is in the plans. He's in the works. This is great news, that although they don't know it yet. God is preparing this house with a king. And what this king, David, again, verse 22, Jesse fathered David, this golden king. What this king was going to do for Israel, he was going to provide a season of peace, a season of prosperity that Israel has never known. And here's why this is good news. Remember how Ruth begins the story. Ruth 1 says, in the time of the judges. Now, that should be a signal to us that we're not in good times here. This is not a a time of peace and prosperity. It's the time of judges. And here's what it says in the book of Judges about life in general during this time. This is Judges 21.5. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Translate that utter chaos, utter chaos. And so what is God saying to this genealogy? Though you don't know to ask for it, though you know, don't know you even need it yet, I'm preparing this house for a king and for a season of prosperity where there will always be a king on the throne who has a heart after God. And you're going to take from vineyards that you did not plant. You're going to enjoy fruit from this vineyard that somebody else put into the ground. And your enemies are going to be at rest, and you're going to be at peace from them. You're going to have your own constitution, the Ten Commandments. And life is going to be better than you've ever known it. You've got this season of peace and prosperity. But this genealogy also points us to the present and the past. Not only does this genealogy show us of of this king, it also points us to a redeemer. Now, most genealogies at this time usually had ten, ten names in them. It's not thorough. It's not meant to be exact. exact. It's just the ten most important names uh, in your family. And this genealogy is a perfect example. There's ten names. And usually in the seventh spot, again, seven is the perfect number, and in the seventh spot, you reserve that for a very special and a very important person. Look who's in the seventh spot in the genealogy. Who is it? It's Boaz. And who is Boaz in this story? He's the redeemer. He's the one that pays this great debt on behalf of Naomi and welcomes Ruth and Naomi uh, into not just his family, but the family of God. So this genealogy tells us that there's going to be this house. God is not just concerned with the house of Boaz. He's concerned with the house of Israel, his, his people, and a king is coming, and that this people have been redeemed through a kinsman redeemer. And we're going to step out of our passage here for a moment. I want to look at Matthew 1.1 because Matthew, when he picks up his gospel story in the New Testament, I believe he picks up the genealogy where Ruth leaves off. Where does Ruth leave? Boaz fathers Jesse. Excuse me, Obed. Obed fathers Jesse. Jesse fathers David. And where does Matthew pick up? Listen to Matthew 1.1. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David, 
Jesus. And in the Hebrew, Jesus is Yeshua. And what does Yeshua mean? It means one who will redeem. It means one who will, to de- who will deliver. And so when we look at Jesus in the New Testament, we see a, a type of David, a greater type. And we see a type of Boaz. As, as generous as Boaz was to Naomi and Ruth, as open-handed and as kind, as merciful as he was, so too is Jesus going to be towards his people. He too is going to pay a great debt. So why? So that we can be adopted into his family. And with those hands, when they're closed, he's going to be fierce and powerful like David was before Goliath. He's going to defend you from your greatest enemies. Death, the grave, ultimate separation from him. That's what Jesus is going to do for his people. Why? Because he is the church's king and he is the church's redeemer. You see how the story gets so much bigger and so much more grand. You see how it, how it ends in an epic fashion? It ends with the story of Jesus, our Redeemer and our King. I want to close uh, with this. I want us to consider another elderly widow, but this time she's in the New Testament. But there's a lot about her that reminds us of Naomi. She's been widowed. And what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2 is that she's been widowed from somewhere between 70 and 85 years. She married when she was young and was married for seven years. Then her husband died, and she's been a widow ever since. And with her time, she has devoted herself to prayer and temple life, and she's in the temple in Luke chapter 2. And just like Naomi, she's presented with a child, just like her. And who is this child? Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to have him anointed, right? And who's there? in the temple. Luke says it's the prophetess Anna. And what is her response to this child, to this dedication? It's just like Naomi's. It's joy. It's thanksgiving. It's gladness. Listen to Luke chapter 2, verse 38. And coming up that very hour, she, being Anna, began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. See the similarities between her and Naomi? Here's the difference. In Naomi's story, Naomi got a kinsman redeemer. Naomi got a daughter. Naomi got a son. But in our case with Anna, Anna didn't get those. Anna didn't have a kinsman redeemer like Boaz. As far as we know, no one to speak for her. She wasn't granted a daughter or a son. So why in the world is she so dadgum happy? Why is she so full? Why is she full of thanksgiving? Why does she want to tell other people about Jesus being brought into the temple? Is it not clear? Her joy and her hope was not in the kinsman redeemer. It was not in this earth. It was not in her present circumstances. Her joy was in her king and her redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and her eyes got to see him for the first time. She got to see Jesus. That's where her hope and where her joy was. And when Jesus Christ is your hope, when he is your joy, when he is your security, when you go to him to be your king, to give you life everlasting, to protect you from your greatest enemies, when you go to Jesus to be your redeemer, to pay your debt, to forgive your sins, your greatest questions are answered in one person. So we can look at our life and we might say, 
I'm bitter. It feels like God has forsaken me. That doesn't have to be the way our narrative ends, right? Let the prophetess Anna speak to you, put her finger in your chest and say, then where is your hope? Is your hope in this world? It should not be. Your hope should be in Christ, who is the king of the church, not just the house of Boaz, but the house of this world. He is king, and he is seated on the throne. And that debt that you have, that great debt of sin that you cannot pay for yourself, guess what? He's a redeemer. He will pay that debt for you if you go to him and if you ask. And when that gets all up in you, when that gets in the marrow of your soul, you can look at your present circumstances. You can go, yes, they are bitter. Yes, they are hard. But I have a hope and a glory that outweighs it. It doesn't dismiss it. It doesn't push it off to the side. It just outweighs it. Can you let Anna instruct you this morning? Can you let her speak to you and say, there is a hope in Jesus Christ that can outweigh your suffering and your trials? It can. And maybe you're here this morning and you're exploring uh, the claims of Christ. Again, hear, hear Anna's words. Listen to what she says. She began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The redemption of Jerusalem. Jesus didn't show up for insiders. He didn't show up for the, for the Naomi's, for the Boaz's. No, he showed up for the Ruth's. He showed up for people like you and for people like me. And just as he was welcoming to Ruth as an, as an outsider into his covenant family, so too that invitation is before you this morning in this hearing. He invites you into his family. And that debt that you owe God, that you cannot pay, he says, come to Christ without money. Come to him and buy. He can redeem you. If he can redeem a Moabite, if he can redeem a guy like Saul, he can redeem a person just like you and me. That's his invitation. So maybe you go to him this morning and you say, and maybe you don't know what all this means yet, and that's okay. The Lord does. But Lord, be my king. Be my redeemer. Lead me into the life everlasting. Forgive me for my sins. And you know what he will do? He will welcome you. He will call you child. It's as if you have been born again. You are in a new family. That's how good our Father is. Amen? Let's pray together. Our great Jesus, we stand in awe of you today because with your great power, you have chose to use, in, you have chosen to use this, this power in mercy and in kindness and in grace. When you could have judged us and pushed us outsiders away, condemned us for our sins, you've been gracious. You've offered us adoption through your Son, Jesus Christ. You've welcomed us into your family. You've given us a seat at your very table. You've given us what we do not deserve and what you do not owe us. Give us an awe of you. Cause us to worship you. Give us faith and belief, for we know we cannot stir this in our own souls, within ourselves. Give that to us, we pray, and we ask it in the matchless name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.